Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are hanging in there, standing tall and finding our voice as we confront confrontation. Generally, when asked, most people don't seek out or enjoy confrontation, and yet it can be a part of our everyday lives to some degree. The definition is a face-to-face meeting, a confrontation between the suspect and the victim, the clashing of forces or ideas, conflict, a violent confrontation between rival gangs, comparison. As you can see, there are varying degrees, and some are as simple as finding your voice in a tense or disagreeable situation. What is your level of comfort? And a follow-up question, are you already getting anxious about even talking about confrontation? We'll look at a number of those degrees as we search for an understanding and possible technique that will make these moments, stages, and phases of our lives more agreeable. I don't like it. No varying degrees there. Well, actually, I'm more comfortable with professional confrontation than personal. Professionally, I have a strong opinion. I mean, it comes from my skill set. I'm confident since I've been honing my craft for decades. So when confronted, I'm more sure of myself. And if the need arises, I push back. Personally, it's a different story. You would think I've had decades and decades, mm, decades and uh, decades to get comfortable there too, but there's still this little girl inside of me who wants to be liked and accepted. I don't like to hurt people's feelings or be disagreeable, so I tend to flex and bend even when I don't want to. Sound familiar? Like you, I'm a work in progress. Dan Rose cuts right to the chase, sharing this is how timid people get over their fear of confrontation and win, found at skillpath.com. A confrontation is usually a conversation with heightened emotions. Sometimes it's a result of unresolved conflict. Sometimes it's a cause of future conflict. And sometimes, if managed properly, it can be the beginning of greater trusting and understanding. But first, you have to learn to control your fear of confrontation. Charlie Reed from lovepanky.com says there are six reasons that people have a fear of confrontation. You fear confrontation due to your upbringing, something from your past, maybe an abusive relationship, a terrible breakup. This can make you gun shy. You fear confrontation because you fear failure. You don't want to be wrong in front of others. You're afraid you may not be liked. You're scared that the other person will stop liking you or like you a lot less after confrontation. You're outnumbered. Standing up for yourself to one or another person is tough enough, but when you're going against a group of people, that can be frightening. You're not confident in delivering your side of the argument. Perhaps your speaking skills aren't as good as you'd like them to be, and you're afraid you won't get your point across. You speak before listening. You don't give your brain enough time to process information. And you speak before you're ready. Most of the hard work involved in difficult conversations is related to you preparing yourself and keeping yourself calm. 
Once you feel prepared, it's time to dive in. Remember, if you can maintain calm and focus during the conversation, even when things seem out of control, you retain your power and help calm other people too. Confronting someone in an assertive kind of matter doesn't have to give you confrontation anxiety. In fact, you might find that others welcome your input and agree to create positive change. If you're leery of expressing your opinion directly, here are six ways to get over your fear of confrontation. Identify the problems with being a pushover. Write down the problems you experience when you avoid confrontation. Perhaps you go home from work feeling stressed out, or maybe your relationship with someone close to you becomes more damaged every time you allow that person to hurt your feelings. List what you might gain by speaking up. On the back of the same piece of paper, write down what you could achieve by speaking up. Your relationships might improve, your problems might be solved, you might become happier. Be specific about the things you stand to gain. Reconsider your assumptions about confrontation. Fear of confrontation is often based on false assumptions. Thoughts like, confrontation is bad, or telling someone I disagree with them will ruin our relationship. These only fuel your fear. In reality, confrontation is healthy. There are many kind and assertive ways to speak up and express your opinion, and doing so might improve the situation more than you ever imagined. Address one issue at a time. If there's just one person you tend to avoid confronting, like a particularly challenging colleague, choose one minor issue to address. Don't pick the biggest problem and don't bring up a lengthy list of items that you don't like. Start small and see what happens. If you avoid speaking up to everyone around you, pick a safe person to confront first. Address something minor and you'll increase your confidence in being assertive in other situations. Stick to I statements and work on staying calm. At the heart of all good communication is the ability to stick to I statements, rather than saying, you're so arrogant in meetings and you never bother showing up on time. Say, I'm concerned about the way you address the group and I feel disrespected when you arrive late. The goal is to be assertive, not aggressive. Keep practicing one small step at a time. Confronting someone is more of an art than a science. What works well in one circumstance might not fly in another. But with practice, you'll be able to recognize when to speak up, how to do it, and the best ways to express yourself effectively. Consider your efforts a work in progress and take small steps. Now that you feel a bit more confident, Use these tips to prepare yourself whenever you have confrontation. With practice, they'll become second nature. Number one, why are we having this conversation and what do I hope to achieve? Is my goal supportive of the other person or punishing? Number two, what are my assumptions about the other person's goals for this conversation? Number three, am I emotionally prepared for this meeting? What feelings are being triggered by this situation, and how does my history explain those triggers? 
Number four, how is my attitude about the impending conversation influencing my approach to it? Can I focus on the good that will come of this rather than worrying about the negative? Number five, what do I know about the other person? What could they want and what are their fears? Could I make this person a partner rather than an adversary? Number six, what are my fears? Do we have common concerns? Number seven, what have I done so far to contribute to the problem at hand? What do I believe the other person has contributed to this problem? It would be best if you didn't confront others at times when you haven't done the necessary prep work. Emotions are too heightened for a rational discussion. There isn't enough time to deal with the issues constructively. The battle isn't worth it. The two participants can't solve the problem by themselves. I know exactly where mine came from. Do you? You know, your fear of confrontation. My mother is a strong woman. Kind, but direct. Let's just say she doesn't mince words. When I was growing up, there were many instances where my mother was involved in or instigated some uncomfortable confrontation. No street fights or hair pulling. Just letting someone know when she was receiving less than stellar customer service. Now, she would say bare minimum attention. I added stellar. I would cringe and hide my head or walk away. As a grown-up, I get it. But as a child, I was mortified. Later, I noticed that I got the same feeling when I would witness any type of confrontation. That uncomfortable and anxious feeling. Age numbs all things. Or maybe we just learn to sort things out better. But I don't notice those feelings near as much. Anyone else relate to that story? Maybe you do identify with this on a professional instead of a personal level. At success.com, I found 11 more ways to handle confrontation. So what is the best way to hash out a problem? We asked the Young Entrepreneur Council, what is your number one tip for confronting adversity head on? So here are their tips. Number one, don't wait to handle confrontation. When confronting adversity, big or small, it's important to tackle the root causes quickly. That doesn't mean reacting without thought or planning, but be prepared to prioritize these problems quickly and identify the real source. If left on the back burner, the adversity grows. Fear and doubt set in, and control of the situation or options diminish. So inhale, identify, plan, and tackle. This came from Matthew Gellis from Keystone Solutions. Number two, feel, then deal. Take a few minutes to accept and process the feeling resulting from the adversity before fixing the problem. Writing a page in a journal to vent on paper or doing some tapping, also known as emotional freedom technique, for a few minutes can help move the emotion out of the body. This allows the leader to handle the confrontation with wisdom and neutrality versus fear and adrenaline. This came from Aaron Weed at The Dig. Number three, deal with confrontation in person. If there's an issue, any issue, it's always best to ask the person to go out for a walk or coffee to hash it out. 
Bottling it up and not addressing it is the worst course of action. And never try to talk it out over email. If it's really important, it needs to be addressed in person. This comes from Jordan Flegel from Coach Up Inc. Number four, express empathy. When confronted with adversity, it's important that you don't try to create a solution as quickly as possible and risk neglecting someone's feelings or point of view. Take time to understand their side of the story and show this sense of understanding clearly. Then work together to reach a middle ground. Don't sweep opinions under the rug, but spend time working with them. This comes from Miles Jennings from Recruiter.com. Number five, identify your goals. Before heading into a bad situation, make sure you understand it and that you're fully prepped. Then figure out what you want to walk away with. What is your goal after handling the confrontation? Remember that it's about the business performance, not about the person's personality or something that you can't change. Work towards your goal with a positive attitude, knowing the limits of what can or cannot change. This comes from Dr. Weishin Lei from Acoustics Sheep, LLC. Number six, remember handling confrontation is part of your job. Whenever I approach one of our advisors with a problem, he often says, it's your job to deal with the hard problems, which sounds harsh but true. Dealing with adversity and overcoming it is a huge part of starting and running a company. This comes from Joseph Walla at HelloSign. Number seven, make friends with adversity. Be prepared and understand that adversity is something that you're going to have to face every day. If you believe that business is full of highs and not so many lows, then you won't be in business for long. Be constantly aware and willing to fight adversity in all aspects of your business every day. That comes from Mark Samuel from I1 Organics. Number eight, remember bad news travels fast. Whenever you face adversity, it's important to communicate as quickly as possible to all relevant stakeholders. Entrepreneurs are born problem solvers, but it doesn't mean you should keep your problems close to the vest because they will fester. Rip off the band-aid, face reality, and focus on how to confront and overcome the issues with your stakeholders. This comes from Nick Braun, Cloud. Number 10, communicate from the top. Take the lead personally. It's extremely important that all of your team hears directly from the founders on any issue of confusion or change of direction that comes up. A quick email from the CEO can immediately answer any questions and provide confidence to the rest of the team. That comes from Ross Cohen at The Lifetime Value Company. Number 11, take one day at a time. It's not an easy road. Outsiders may think this is a well-established business, but it didn't used to be. It started small. They all do. So it's vital to motivate young people to believe that things can go well and that their business will grow with time and effort. Each day comes with problems, so why stress about tomorrow? That comes from Alfredo Antanasio at youassist.me. 
In my professional life, speaking up, being direct and assertive is the only way to succeed. So I developed a tougher skin. I'm not a bull in a china shop because you get more bees with honey, but I'm definitely not afraid to voice my opinion and stand behind my ideas. But I do believe there's a knack to being successful with confrontation. You don't have to be the loudest, but you should be the most researched and educated. I don't step up with an idea just to throw my name in the hat. I'm always looking to add value when I take the floor. How about you? When do you push forward and when do you avoid? Cyan Ferguson enlightens us with why you need to stop avoiding conflict and what to do instead, found at psychcentral.com. Conflict avoidance defined is consequences of avoiding conflict. Do you have a conflict avoidant personality? It's possible to overcome this people-pleasing behavior. Conflict can make most people feel uneasy, whether a full-blown argument or a civil confrontation. However, some people avoid conflict at all costs, even when the conflict is necessary. These people can be described as conflict avoidant. To avoid rocking the boat, Conflict-avoidant people might bottle up their feelings and sidestep discussing important issues with others. Conflict avoidance can damage your relationships and harm your mental health. This people-pleasing behavior can also make it difficult to set and maintain boundaries. It's possible to overcome conflict avoidance and learn to handle confrontations in a healthy and constructive way. A conflict-avoidant personality is a type of people-pleasing behavior where someone avoids conflict or disagreements at all costs and fears making others upset or angry. This explains Babetta Spinelli, a psychotherapist licensed in New York, New Jersey, and Florida. Individuals who are conflict-avoidant tend to expect there will be a negative reaction and avoid even interactions that are healthy, she explains. How do you know if you're a conflict avoidant? According to Spinelli, you might deny there's an issue, fear or avoid expressing yourself, bottle up feelings and later explode or become passive aggressive, make jokes during confrontations, change the subject when conflict comes up, strive to be seen as the nice one, avoid disagreeing with others even when you're inwardly disagreeing. Avoiding conflict altogether isn't healthy. Avoiding conflict means bottling up emotions, and when we bottle up our feelings, it can negatively manifest in the body. Indeed, repressing your emotions can negatively affect your physical and mental health, according to research from 2019. Conflict avoidance can also harm your relationships. Spinelli says it can lead to a breakdown of communication and impact healthy connections. When we avoid expressing our feelings, we're ultimately creating emotional distance with our partner. Conflict avoidance isn't good for our working relationships either. A study on workplace incivility found that avoiding conflict doesn't stop friction from reoccurring in the workplace. Plus, avoidance also led to increased emotional exhaustion. When you 
avoid conflict at all costs, it can also make it harder to create and maintain boundaries. When someone violates your boundaries, it might be necessary to reinforce those boundaries by confronting the person. So here are five tips for overcoming conflict avoidance. Number one, consider the value of conflict. Reframe how you're viewing conflict, Spinelli says. Instead of seeing conflict as something that's inevitably hurtful, consider how it can be productive. For example, conflict can be an opportunity to share your feelings and become closer to your partner. Vulnerability can improve emotional intimacy as it can help your partner understand you better. And it can help you feel more accepted and loved. Conflict can help you identify and resolve problems with your coworkers in the workplace. For example, if your coworkers call a meeting about unfair schedule changes, it gives you all a chance to suggest a better method of scheduling work. Speaking up can ultimately lead to creating a fairer system and benefiting everyone. Number two, build up to it slowly. Spinelli suggests practicing saying no in smaller situations with low risk or start with conflicts that cause the least amount of anxiety. Voicing your objections could include pointing out if the barista got your coffee order wrong or reminding your coworker that they forgot to get back to you on an important issue. Handling these small situations politely but firmly can help you build confidence. These situations are excellent opportunities to practice communication skills. Number three, face your anxieties. Your anxiety might be fueling what-if thoughts. You might think, what if I reinforce a boundary with my boss and they fire me? Or what if I confront my spouse about forgetting our anniversary and it becomes a big fight? These thoughts might make it difficult for you to face conflict. Instead, you can acknowledge the anxiety and think it through realistically. Spinelli says you can check in on the story you're telling yourself about someone else's reaction and poke holes in that story. Let's say you want to remind your boss that you don't answer work calls after five. If you worry that your boss will fire you for reinforcing this boundary, you might remind yourself that your boss is a reasonable person who values work-life balance. Of course, in some cases, the outcome you dread might happen. Spinelli suggests that you prepare mentally for this scenario. She says you could create a plan or language on how you would address it. For example, you might practice reminding your boss about your boundaries and that they agreed to be your boundaries in the first place. You also might double-check your company's policy on after-hour phone calls as you use this policy as a backup. Number four. Try anxiety management techniques during conflict. Conflict can be anxiety-inducing for many people. This anxiety might cause you to avoid or sidestep important conversations. During confrontation, you can try to practice anxiety management techniques. Strategies can include engaging in deep breathing techniques before the confrontation. During the conflict, you can remind yourself to breathe deeply. It also is a good idea to pause before reacting. It's okay to express that you need a moment or more time to process your feelings before responding. Spinelli says and adds that pausing before responding relieves the pressure to react immediately. A pregnant pause, so to speak, 
also helps you think your options through clearly. Number five, consider therapy. Therapy can help address the workshop conflict. Spinelli highly recommends therapy for people who tend to avoid conflict because it can help you understand why you avoid this and practice conflict management techniques. It can also help you identify your fears, reframe your thoughts on conflict, build positive communication skills, practice verbalizing your feelings, learn techniques to cope with anxiety. Many people dislike conflict. But in some cases, conflict avoidance can harm your relationships and your health. It's possible to overcome conflict avoidance and learn to handle confrontation in a productive and healthy way. Consider practicing conflict management skills in low-stress situations. Therapy and anxiety management techniques may also help you cope during conflict. I typically don't rub people in the wrong way. I say typically for those of you who are shaking your head. First, I try and listen to understand. I think that's a step that is so easily missed. We listen to respond, and when we do this, we miss so many key elements, emotions, and intent. Then I like to mirror or moderate the person I'm speaking with. What I mean is, if they're casual, I'm casual. If they're professional, I'm professional. I use a lot of focused eye contact and empathy from statements to head nods and agreements. If they raise their voice, I lower mine in the effort to create balance. What are some of your techniques that you use? Paul McGee, author of How to Succeed with People, shares how to reduce conflict and build better relationships, found on the Capstone Publishing YouTube channel. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Paul McGee, author of the book How to Succeed with People, remarkably easy ways to engage, influence, and motivate almost anyone. Have you ever had a conflict, a a misunderstanding, a a disagreement, and wondered why things have escalated the way they have? Well, I'm about to explain why that happens. So what colours the beach ball? Well, I guess from your perspective, it's red, yellow, and orange, because that's what you see. But you know what's really interesting? I am looking at exactly the same thing as you are, but I'm seeing something entirely different. You see, you might be seeing red, yellow, and orange, but I'm seeing blue, white, and green. So maybe one of the things we need to appreciate is that people can actually see things differently from each other and both be right. So how can we build better relationships? How can we minimize conflict? I'm about to show you how. So why don't you think of a person who you'd like to build a better relationship with and maybe minimize the conflict between you? It could be a customer, it could be a colleague, or it could be a loved one. I'd like to give you four questions to ponder. Here's the first one. What's going on in their world at the moment? You see, if we're not careful in terms of our communication, from my perspective, all I'm seeing is blue, white, and green. 
But am I taking time out to see their side of the beach ball? What are their issues? What are their needs? What are their concerns at the moment? I remember being picked up by a taxi driver over in Dublin and the first thing I thought about when I saw him was flipping miserable sod. Judgmental, I know, but that's how he came across. I sat in the taxi with him and then I asked him a question. I said, busy day? He said, um, yeah, it has been, but not doing work. I've just been in the hospital with my daughter all, all morning. I went, oh, nothing serious. He went, possible brain hemorrhage. You see, when I'd seen him, I'd just seen misery on his face and thought he was a miserable sod. But I'd not really taken time out to even consider what might be going on in his world at the moment. So that customer, that colleague, that loved one, have you ever taken time out to think what is going on in their world at the moment? Question number two, what's important to them at this time? Does this person need a good listening to? Do they need some support? Do they need some time out? Do they just need to feel that they are being understood by you? Do you know what? I've spoken in 36 countries to date and no one, no one has ever said the following to me. You know my trouble, Paul? I've had too much encouragement in life. So perhaps what might be really important to that person at the moment is a bit of encouragement to feel valued and appreciated. What's going on in their world at the moment? What's important to them at this time? Here's question number three. Am I listening to understand or listening to defend? You see, you want to tell me your side of the beach ball, but if I'm not careful, I'm interrupting you and going, ah, yes, but, ah, yes, but, ah, yes, but. You see, I've learned this with my wife, who's also my business partner. There are occasions when she needs to sit me down and give me a little bit of feedback. And if I'm not careful, I'm listening to her whilst building up the case for the defence. Do you know what I sometimes need to literally do? I need to shut up and listen. Why not develop what I call the gift of the gap? Yeah, that's right. Not the gift of the gab, the gift of the gap. Actually press pause, allow some time and space for the other person to talk and you listen. Listen to understand doesn't mean you're going to listen to agree, but once I understand your side of the beach ball and where you're coming from, perhaps you'll be more open to listening to my side of the beach ball as well. Here's your fourth and final question. Have I clearly communicated my perspective? You see, from my perspective, it was obvious the beach ball is blue, white and green. But maybe I'm making the assumption because I can see that so clearly, so too can other people. Here's the deal. People are not mind readers. What your priorities are at the moment might not be their priorities. Maybe you need to turn that beach ball round and clearly communicate your perspective. So, will we eradicate conflict with these four questions? No. You see, to some extent, I think conflict is inevitable. But fighting is optional. And if we use these four questions, then I think we can reduce conflict and build better relationships. I wish you a lot of success. Setting healthy boundaries can help you prevent unwanted confrontation, especially personal confrontation. You've heard the phrase, I'm an open book. Let's consider gently closing the book, not slamming it shut, 
and offering a few chapters at a time. This would help you get to know a person before you give them access to all avenues in your life. When you open yourself up fully too soon, you leave yourself vulnerable for attack, which can lead to unwanted confrontation. Not saying it's easy, but it's time to look at your difficult relationships in a different way so that you can re-engineer expectations. Dr. Lynn Margolis teaches us how to set boundaries with difficult people found at psychcentral.com. We can all relate to feeling put upon and irritated by some people, but powerless to stop accommodating them. Though we take issue with their behavior, needs, or implicit demands, it's not so easy to set limits. We may be uncomfortable with conflict and not want anyone to be mad or disappointed. We may feel bad and genuinely want to help or want to be liked and seen as a good person or a team player. Using wishful thinking and taking the path of least resistance, we get pulled into repetitive patterns where we feel controlled, build up resentment, and want to escape or act out. People tend to deny or overestimate what they can actually tolerate or do. Failing to have realistic expectations of themselves or others, even when it's predictable how scenarios will play out. Rather than face what's true and accommodate the reality, we act based upon what we think we and others should be able to do or hope the problem will disappear. Further, when we do try to set limits with certain people, we still can't get them to respect what we tell them. Popular misconceptions and even subtle strategic errors can make setting limits a losing battle. The good news is that you can easily become successful using a method that sidesteps struggle and puts you in control. So here are some popular mistakes that cause boundary setting to fail. Number one, telling people what they should do or not do. This creates resistance and struggle. Trying to change or manage the other person is not likely to be well-received or successful, especially when unsolicited and there's a pattern of problematic behavior. Most people don't like to be told what to do and what they're doing wrong, or they may not be able to stop. Number two, poor timing or wrong intent. Reacting from anger or frustration in the heat of the moment when you're at your wit's end. This approach triggers a reaction in kind, escalates and prolongs the situation. It's a desperate attempt to try to force the other person to do something. Turning up the volume sends executive functions offline, further limiting a person's ability to control themselves or process information. Limits are different than punishment and are not motivated by or delivered in anger. The feelings or motivation behind what we do affects the message received and determines its impact. Number three, trying to get people to admit or own up to something or recognizing that the limits are for their own good. This approach creates a control struggle around autonomy, inviting argument, debate, and resistance. It's experienced as emotional force trying to control how the other person thinks or feels, and it can also be humiliating. Number four, saying too much 
justifying, over-explaining, and being invested in convincing the other person that what you're saying is reasonable or right. This approach seems insecure, relinquishes power, diminishes credibility, allows an opening for opposition and argument. It's associated with needing validation, fear of the other person getting mad, or the misconception that logic works when emotions are at play. Setting limits effectively requires coming from a position of strength, being grounded and emotionally separate from the other person. Number five, being unprepared, including not factoring in what you already know about how things will realistically play out. This sets up a preventable failure or having a plan but not consistently doing what you say you'll do. That sabotages your credibility. Also, intermittent reinforcement increases problematic behavior. Essential ingredients for effective boundary setting are tell the other person what you're going to do, not what they should do. You're only in control of what you do, but what you do can limit the other person. Think ahead. Troubleshooting in advance to anticipate predictable resistance, incorporating this information into your plan. Be firm, but also passionate, clear and concise, both with your boundaries and with reinforcing them. Introduce limits at neutral times, calmly without fanfare, and in a relevant moment. No tone, no struggle, no explaining, minimal effort. Effective consequences stand on their own. Make it about you and your limits, not about them and what's best for them. Stay in your own lane. This works because it's argument proof and can't be refuted. Offering up that you could be wrong, being objectively correct isn't related to success here. Making it about your opinion or simply what you're comfortable with puts you in charge and not imposing anything on the other person. Allowing the other person to hold on to their viewpoint prevents a constant control struggle, and it's respectful. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, don't shy away from an uncomfortable situation, but use it as a way to learn more about yourself, gather a deeper understanding of others, and as a chance to find your voice. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone's rule until the path was clear.